This is Womb, the podcast that celebrates the power of rebirth. I'm your host, Nova Cobbin, and on this show, we'll hear from amazing women who dared to rediscover who they are. Women who reignited long-lost passions, took bold leaps of faith, and reimagined their futures in ways they never thought possible. Each week, we'll be inspired by the stories of strength, courage, and resilience. Stories that remind us it's never too late to start anew. There are always second chances, new beginnings, and opportunities for rebirth. So join us as we explore the journeys of phenomenal women who reinvented themselves and created the lives they've always dreamed of. Welcome to Womb Rebirth. Let's go. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Womb Rebirth podcast. I am here today with Louisa Whitney. Um, I'm going to do an introduction to Louisa. So Louisa is an accredited family mediator and child inclusive mediator. She is also a professional practicing consultant and trainer. She worked as a family lawyer for 11 years before undertaking mediation training. She describes the transition as her work from her work as a lawyer helping people put out fires they'd started and her work as a mediator teaching the couple how to avoid starting fires in the first place great that's brilliant love that in 2013 she set up a standalone mediation practice to offer high quality empathic mediation to separating couples with an emphasis on teaching them the communication skills to manage their separation calmly constructively consciously and compassionately that is wonderful. Welcome, Louisa. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm really excited to chat to you. Yes, I'm I'm really excited to hear your story because not only do I think that the work that you're doing is really, really important, I think it's going to be very interesting understanding how you got to that point as well. Yeah, well, so, I'm excited to talk about it. Brilliant. So obviously, we know where you are now. What we don't know is what brought you to that place. So we already know that there's going to be some element of rebirth in there, but where would you like us to take us for where we can start? What's the starting point of, of all of this for you? So I would say that the starting point for me was working as a family lawyer and I was a mum of two very young children and I was doing that thing that so many, so many women but so many parents do where you just feel like you don't have a minute in the day. It's literally run up to work, do everything you can at work, run home, do everything you can at home, and you just feel like you're on the treadmill. And I'd wanted to be a lawyer since, oh, I think I was about 12 years old. That was what I wanted wow. to be. Um, and so it was really um, quite disconcerting for me when I found out that I really wasn't enjoying the work very much and I was struggling with it and I didn't feel like I was doing what I was doing. So I was just in this phase really where I wasn't very excited about my work. I felt like I didn't have any time to myself. And I think I'd probably lost a bit of sight of who I am in amidst all the balls that I was juggling. Yes, definitely a very familiar tale. And funnily enough, one that I've recorded today and one that I recorded last week had a similar kind of awakening, if you like, that something that they always felt was something that they would really enjoy and they really wanted to do. And they'd gone into it as a career had sort of lost the shine somewhere along the way because once it became a job it didn't have the same level of sort of enjoyment or the same passion behind it as it did when it was something that they did on the side or something that was an idea in their mind but what for you kind of took the shine off it when did the enjoyment start to go out of it I think it was a combination of factors really 
I think that there was an element that I wasn't doing what it was I wanted to do. Like part of the reason I wanted to be a lawyer was to help people and to kind of help them to find what they needed that they couldn't access themselves. And I didn't feel like that's the role that I was fulfilling. I felt like I was just helping two very angry people to continue fighting. And on some level, I knew that that wasn't really what was going to serve them. I also felt like I was just on the hamster wheel and there was a kind of part of me that was a bit like, there must be more to life than this. There must be a better way of living life. Um, and I wasn't particularly happy in the working environment that I was in as well. You know, as with a lot of things, it, 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 relationships as well, it's not 100% bad or 100% good. It's a lot of kind of grey area and there were good things about it, but there were also bad things that were kind of niggling at me that I wasn't very comfortable with. And the niggles just gradually got louder until they were shouting at me. And I was boring myself with the fact that I was miserable. So God knows what my friends and family were thinking. <laughs> and I just thought, you know, something's got to change. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that we do see that played out in certain industries or certain professions that there's a really great idea of what the mission is behind it like the law it, you know when we think of it as a concept it should be a really great thing that kind of like helps people and supports them in their most vulnerable moments um or that you know creates a justice system that people believe in and buy into and all of those kind of things and when it comes to like couples i think you're right that, that certainly in what i do with the therapy side of things there are a lot of people who find that they don't want to go down that route because they're worried that actually it's going to be very acrimonious, it's going to make things worse, it's going to create division where before there was at least some unity there. Um, so it's interesting that you kind of found that you weren't able to do what you wanted to do within that format. So you, So tell us what happens next then. So I then did mediation training in 2012. So as well as being a lawyer, I was then also working as a mediator. And it sounds a real cliche, doesn't it, when people talk about doing life-changing training. Um, so I want to stress that I really, really don't say that lightly. But it was really understanding that there was a different way of approaching people and helping those that were separating to work out what happened next. Um, and it just seemed like that was much more in line with my skill set because I am very, I'm quite an empathetic person. I can read stuff going on that other people don't necessarily pick up on. You know, it's one of those things about being a highly sensitive person is that sometimes it can overwhelm you, but equally it can make you very good in certain jobs. Um, and I just really loved the training and it just seemed a better way of working. It was really a much more positive step, I felt. Um, and lots of lawyers that I was doing with the training with were finding it really hard to not give people solutions and not tell people what to do. For me, I was really comfortable with that because I was just full at capacity of being responsible for what happens to other people. I was really ready to kind of let go of that aspect. So I found that bit of it quite easy. Um, and that was just when the sort of my eyes were opened and this gradual thought process started of could I just do mediation? And I, you know, I sat on it for ages because making a leap like that's pretty scary. Um, but that was kind of what was happening in my head. So that environment that you were around before you did the mediation training, where people presumably are pretty angry, pretty upset, pretty 
scared maybe as well what effect was that having on you were you carrying a lot of that home with you and was that sort of affecting other areas of your life I definitely think that was happening and I don't think I really understood enough about kind of energetic boundaries at that time so you know I was good with my um, time boundaries when you work part-time and you've got children you kind of have to be because you know that if you don't leave the office you're going to get a massive nursery file and everyone's going to be very cross with you so I was good about leaving the office at that time Um, but things like you know I would always answer emails on the days that I wasn't supposed to be working and I definitely definitely carried things with me and there are a few cases that I've dealt with the years that I can remember waking up at three o'clock in the morning and thinking about these people because what they were going through just really touched me and that just stayed with me and you don't realize that you're like a sponge soaking all this stuff up until you start to feel really heavy and that you're being weighed down by everything um and I think I kind of came to the realization that I was but I didn't fully understand what was happening if that makes sense Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And did you find that um, some of the couples that you were around, you were sort of in that moment working with them and feeling all of that pain and all the stuff that was going on? And then did you ever get to sort of follow up and find out what happened later? Or were you just always kind of left with in that space and then you're on to the next person? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's funny because as a lawyer, the kind of main differences between a lawyer and a mediator are lawyers only work with one pe- one person. So you're only seeing one side of it. And one thing that fascinated me coming into mediation was getting both sides of the story. And it was a real kind of penny drop moment that you could really see how people had ended up in the situation they had. And as a lawyer, I was usually involved until the kind of end outcome, albeit that the legal outcome doesn't necessarily coincide with the emotional outcome when people kind of get closure and start to move on. In mediation, sometimes you're involved up until that point, but sometimes actually people come in um, and what you do enables them to be able to communicate so they can then sort things out themselves. So sometimes people do just go away and I have no idea what happened to them. Mm -hmm. And that is a bit of a weird thing. You do sometimes wonder about it. Um, But I love the fact that in mediation, we can give people the tools to be able to sort things out themselves and to not actually need professionals so much anymore. And that is just a, you know, to me, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Mm, yeah absolutely and I, I'm guessing or hoping that as a result of you sort of moving uh, or shifting across in your career to having a different take on it that actually that um, changed the way that you see yourself and changed the way that you um, experience your own sort of mental well-being as a result of having shifted. A hundred percent and I would say that that's an ongoing journey as well I wouldn't say oh yeah I've reached the destination there Um, It's a funny thing about running your own business and setting up your own, you know, thing. There is nowhere to hide. Anything that you kind of didn't face in yourself beforehand has this uncanny way of kind of jumping up in your work. So it has been a real journey of kind of making me look at the depths of myself. Um, And the journey of kind of well-being has been has been a really interesting one. So kind of going back before I became, before I set up on my own as a mediator, I had a breakdown in 2003 because no one had ever told me that I could have boundaries and that I could say, no, I can't do that today or that'll have to be next week. So my journey kind of with boundaries had started already, but I sort of look on it that I was kind of basic level compassion at that point and setting up my own business has mean I've really had to go to kind of advanced level compassion because it's very easy to go, well, this is my baby, I should go the extra mile or I should do the extra thing. 
Um, and it's it's been a real experiment in what will work for me. I mean, I've just come back off two weeks off and this time I did not look at my emails for two weeks at all. And I've never done that before. I've always put an out of office on saying I'm not looking at them, but I've always had them on my phone and just checked in. So it's very much an evolving journey on that, which, you know, I'm excited about. It's been really interesting kind of discovering more stuff about myself. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, there's so much that I want to dig into and what you've just said there. So um, but let me if if we may go back to when you said that you were experiencing a breakdown effectively because of the inability to recognize that boundaries were OK and it was all right to put some in place. So um, tell us what what life was like before that realization happened. And then when and how did you come to the realization that it was OK? So it, my law is a really cutthroat profession. And before I got a job as a paralegal, I'd applied for about 100 training contracts where you effectively train on the job to be a lawyer and got rejected for them all. So this kind of not good enough idea had really embedded itself in me, although I wouldn't have told you at the time and I wouldn't have recognised that. So when I got a job as a paralegal, I really felt, oh, my God, you've got to make this work, because if you don't make this work, the career you've wanted to do for ages is over. You've really got to prove your worth. So it was, yes, I can do that. Yeah, no, I can totally do that. And I was living in London. I was just fresh out of kind of university. It was what you did. You know, you went to work and then you did socialising. And that was what we did and how all my friends were living their lives. So I thought staying in the office till, you know, seven, eight o'clock in the evening or doing stuff was just normal. But I didn't realise how much I was kind of taking it to heart. And it wasn't just about doing the work. It was also about feeling the responsibility of everything. Um, and I just thought this was something that I had to cope with. And it was only when I was coming back from holiday with my um, boyfriend at the time, now my husband, when I was crying on the way back in the car. And he said to me, I think it's normal to be upset that you're coming back off holiday, but I'm not sure it's normal to be sobbing. Maybe there's something that is not right for you. Um, and that really made me stop and think about it, that actually maybe the way I was feeling wasn't, you know, the way that perhaps I should have been feeling or that I was in a place that I needed help with. I mean, that's huge, isn't it? To kind of recognise that things have got to the point where you haven't even questioned that that might not be normal or OK or good for you even. Yeah. And that. Uh, eventually that's going to come out somewhere and luckily somebody was able to sort of see that and mirror that back to you and say I don't think that the way that you're reacting right now is just because of holiday there must be something more going on yeah absolutely and that was when I kind of started to talk about it a bit more um and my parents particularly my dad was really supportive because he'd been through something similar um, and then I went to the doctors, I got signed off work for a couple of weeks, I got put on antidepressants, I started counselling, and that was really helpful, enabling me to determine that I wasn't failing, I wasn't a bad person, I was just somebody who got stuck in a difficult situation that they didn't know how to handle with no boundaries, and, you know, was it any wonder it was overwhelming me, and that was a real start of a journey of learning, you know, what is your capacity, how can you make sure that you are working within the limits of what is okay for you and finding out about that. And it also, that kind of journey of self-discovery led me to understand that I was a highly sensitive person, which meant that I was probably affected by things more than somebody who wasn't so sensitive. And it's really been a journey of kind of learning more about myself since then. Yeah, it, it, it's, 
interesting how many times I have heard that somebody has gone through something really quite dramatic in terms of the you know the sort of ending or the fallout that's happened as a result of recognizing that an ending is needed in terms of you know they've felt like it's rock bottom or they felt like they don't know who they are anymore or you know their mental health has really declined for a period of time and it's within that space if you like that's created after that's happened that you're like maybe there's room for something else to come in here and I don't know what that is yet but let's go and try a few things and then as you said you kind of tried another role and that was not quite right either because you wanted some space but not so much space that you were bored or or that you felt unuseful so obviously for you the the, the optimal is somewhere in the middle of those two things yeah and it's very much what I found is an exercise in managing my, my time so that I'm doing work that lifts me up and I feel good about but that I have you know regular breaks in a day so I can get outside and walk the dog and I don't feel that every minute is consumed by things um and it's funny because I, I one of the reasons I set up my own business was to create that space for myself but I think there was definitely a point somewhere on the lines where it was a bit like because this is my own work I actually want to put more time in it and I want to invest and mm. so the balance kind of swung back again so it had definitely has been a bit of kind of scales tipping up and tipping down to find out where the balance is and how it works and how it works now because you know what work with my children are really little doesn't necessarily work now that they're teenagers and so it's like an ever-evolving thing and sometimes I get caught on the hoff caught on the hoof that I perhaps haven't um, adapted to a new phase in a way that I could have done. Yeah, I think I think that's you're right that um, it has to continue to evolve when we have children, because we sort of have this idea that when they're little, that's kind of the time that they need us the most. But actually, I found I don't know if you have as well, that that's true, but they do still need us, although albeit in a different way in the teenage years and perhaps even more so in some ways. And that I've I found with my son when he became a teenager and also when I was a teenager and my mum changed careers that there was this time around then when I really needed her more and my son needed me more than I recognised because you kind of think oh they're you know they're a bit older now and so they can take care of themselves but there's new needs that come along all the time aren't there? Uh, definitely and I, I think there's the kind of when they're little they have the more practical needs in terms of like of you know food putting them to bed sorting out you know whatever is needed bags wise whereas teenagers can manage most of that themselves but it's the emotional stuff and they're being there so that if something big's happening you know sometimes you know because you can see what's happening but they don't want to talk about it and then there's that moment where you just suddenly it's all coming out and they need someone to be there because that's the moment and you don't always know when that moment's going to be so again it's one of the advantages of working from home as well and sort of being able to be there but I agree with you I think there is definitely a kind of helping make sense of the world angle and being there to just receive stuff and kind of order it and help work through it that is very needed for teenagers um I can get quite frustrated sometimes because I see a lot of parents of teenagers when they separate which when you ask how their children are they kind of go oh well they're a bit grumpy but they're teenagers aren't they and it mm. tends to mask the fact that they might be going through a lot and people just write them off as teenagers so they don't then talk to them. Yes, yes. I, I always found that uh, sort of hovering in the vicinity was a sign that there was something coming. But if I asked directly, then it would sort of be, you know, pushed back. 
But uh, as long as I made sure I was around, eventually the hovering would become a conversation. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That resonates with me a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And as you're, as you're talking, I'm sort of seeing, because one of the key uh, events that tend to happen when people go through a rebirth, one of them is divorce or a relationship breakdown. And that's the point at which, you know, people can really dramatically change their identity, their lives, everything can kind of change around that event. And of course, in that, when you have children, there's like a whole other dynamic that kind of gets thrown into that as well, depending on sort of the age and stage that your children are at, of course. So um, do you, does your work ever focus on this idea of how people who people are without each other in their lives or with that co-parenting dynamic going on do you sort of help them with that side of things at all yeah we tend to talk a lot about co-parenting in mediation for those people that haven't yet found their way with it um sometimes it starts as early as talk the children don't know the parents are going to separate and one of the things that they do initially in mediation is to plan how are we going to have this conversation? Where are we going to have the conversation? What are the key messages that we really want to make sure that our children um, know and that we're going to stress in the conversation? Because often it's, you know, this two people can plan it to the nth degree, but ultimately it may be hard for children to take in information beyond a kind of few basic facts and the fact that mum and dad are separating. Some children have an idea that this is going to happen. You know, they've observed arguments. They're pretty savvy. They know what goes on. They've got friends whose parents have separated. For some children, it's a really big shock. So it can be quite helpful to work together to um, plan that. More longer term, I think it's a really difficult relationship adjustment to go from being romantic partners um, to just being co-parents and that relationship transition is something that I think takes a lot of trial and error on how to get the the boundaries right I think it's particularly difficult for people that continue to live in the same house even though they've separated because it can feel really artificial saying oh well this is my weekend with the children no that's your weekend with children because you're both in the same house yeah having those conversations about how are you going to manage it you know, if you are going to set weekends now, is one of you going to try and go away and stay with a friend so that the other person's there? Um, simple things like, you know, as romantic partners, it's completely okay if someone comes out of the bathroom in a towel to go to their bedroom to get something. But once you've separated in the same house, that can feel really, really uncomfortable. Yeah. Even when somebody's moved out, is it okay for them to come back to the house without notice? Is it okay for them to just walk in or should they ring the bell? All of these things can be really tricky to sort out in the early stages, because particularly because, you know, there's often this, well, I feel really uncomfortable when you burst into the house because I might be getting changed. Um, well, but it is still my house. Why should I have to ask before I come back into my house? So there's a real transition of changing those boundaries around. Um, and often it is trial and error. You know, I didn't like that. That made me uncomfortable. How can we do it differently going forward? What do our children need from us? what arrangements are we going to make when are they going to be with mum when are they going to be with dad what are decisions that the parent that the children are with will make and what are the decisions that will always be joint decisions and the examples I often give about this are you know if you're the parent the children are with you're not going to ring your um 
co-parent you know and say is it cereal this morning is it toast this morning should we go to the park should we go to the leisure center and have a swim you know you're making those decisions as the parent the children are with but if you're talking about what school the children go to or should they have a particular medical treatment or something like that most parents want those kind of decisions to be joint decisions mm. so it can help to be really clear on what are decisions made by the parent the children are with at the time and what decisions are always going to be joint decisions between the two of you so it can require an awful lot of thinking sometimes I think more than people think about to kind of work out what is this relationship going to look like and how are we going to make it the best it can be and that looks different for different people yeah I mean I think a lot of what you're saying actually people who are listening maybe would have not thought of that after the relationship after the relationship changes its identity let alone the two people within the relationship but when the relationship itself has a totally new identity particularly if you're living together like you said then there are a lot of things to negotiate and some of the things that you were saying now I thought oh gosh yeah that's that's huge having to negotiate all of those things yeah definitely and I think you're right that often the people involved have changed but often one person feels like the other person has changed mm. you know I've lost count of the number of people that say I don't know who the, that person is anymore they're not the person I fell in love with I don't know and that can be quite scary when someone that you've spent a lot of your life with seems like a completely different person to you but sometimes you know things happen and it can be as a result of something really significant or it can be more of a gradual process and people do change and then feel that, you know, the relationship doesn't have a future. And that in itself, I think, can bring other difficulties with one person thinking the other person, you know, it's often brained on a midlife crisis, on menopause, on other things, because the other person naturally thinks there's got to be an explanation for this. You know, it's not just that they're and changing and that they've got different um goals or dreams now it's a it's a lot easier and a lot more hurtful to kind of think oh well, there must be a particular reason for it and if they take a tablet or something they'll be back to the way they were that's quite hard hitting isn't it because I think you're right that we do sort of you know I'm thinking about the fact that you know I've, I've just gone through surgical menopause and so there's definitely aspects of me that have changed as a result of that but also, you know, when you when you grow up with somebody within a relationship, there are so many changes across that. Naturally, there are going to be so many changes across that timeline. And I think it's very easy to because, you know, yourself and the journey for you has been quite slow that you have internalized those changes. And so for you, it feels almost like, well, I haven't changed. It must be that they have changed and probably both of you have changed you must have changed over that journey you know no one really remains the same but I guess it's sort of whether you're changing and doing this or, or changing and, and doing this absolutely and I think once they've heard that their partner wants to separate or only once they've accepted it because there can be a real period of denial where they just assume that you know something's gone wrong or it's a temporary blip and it will be back to normal soon um, and that can be really difficult in terms of trying to sort things out because you've got one person that's going, come on, come on, I've waited long enough to start my new life. I want to get on with it now. And the other person saying, I have no idea what's just happened. I'm reeling. I'm not sure what day it is. I can't make big decisions about what happens next when, you know, I'm struggling to hold it together just to hold my job down. But yes. And, and when you're in that situation and you're hearing those stories and you're recognizing these sort of similar patterns that you see amongst people that come to you, are you sort of able to, I mean, obviously your role is to be a mediator, so you're not sort of taking an opinion or, or a side in it, but do you find that you are sort of 
trying to help the other person understand by saying, you know, this is something that we see a lot or talking in, in the way that you've just done with me, kind of explaining that these are often things that happen. Yeah, exactly that. You know, we have to give lots of information and to flag things with people because for most people, um, they haven't, you know, yes, you get people that separate more than once, but most people are not experts in what happens in separation. Most people have no idea what happens when they separate. So if we don't give them information about things, you know, there's no reason why they would necessarily happen upon it. If you Google separation, I mean, you get billions of hits. So trying to work out what information is sensible and what information is not is really difficult for people. So we do a lot of kind of explaining things, not just about the kind of legal or financial aspects, but also about the emotional aspects. And that helps people to understand that perhaps their ex-partner isn't being difficult or obstructive. They are just grieving and they are finding that difficult and they are up to capacity with their grief process. And often, you know, there is a weight for the person who's still going through a grief process to be able to have gone through that sufficiently to start to be able to evaluate options and think about what happens next and things like that. Um, and that can help people to think about it. You know, I often say to people, yes, you can force the issue by taking them to court, but you're unlikely to get even a first hearing date for at least five months. And if you push that through, it's going to make things more difficult. Whereas if you wait five months and then come into mediation, you'll probably sort things out in a few months. Whereas if you force through the court process and everybody digs their heels in, you're looking at spending tens of thousands of pounds and it probably taking up to 18 months. So actually sometimes waiting is the much better option because it brings you back together in a much better space to talk about what happens next, rather than one person feeling really aggrieved because they feel they've been kind of ripped through their grief process because the other person's impatient to start a new chapter. So mm. all of this information is really useful for people to have so that they can make decisions about what happens next. As mediators, we're not there to tell people what to do. What we're there is to give people information to help them make decisions about what is the right way forward for them. I mean, this is so enlightening because, I'm, I mean, the fact that you would help them have the discussion with their children or talk to each other about what that should look like, the fact that you support them in terms of information on the emotional side of things and how that looks and can feel, um, and that you're able to help them feed back to one another what's actually going on or, or beyond the practicalities of separation. Um, is, is fantastic and I think it's great that we're having this conversation because I think a lot more people will understand that the mediation process is more than just you know let's talk before we go to the court let's kind of see if we can come to some kind of arrangement there's actually a lot more that goes on around that as well which which I didn't really know I mean my only experience of mediation was um, during court proceedings to have the mediation um, which was very very helpful um, but you know was was only a very quick session um, yeah. so this is this is really great yeah and you know it's also possible for children to be brought into the mediation process not to give them any kind of decision making and um, responsibility but because if you're mediating with their parents sometimes it can be useful to give the children a safe space where they can offload what they're thinking about what they're worried about anything that they'd like to say that perhaps they feel they can't say to mum or dad and it's all completely confidential and the mediator only feeds back to mum and dad what messages they want them to know. So it can be really helpful in helping the parents to understand what actually is the children's ideas about things or their worries about things. Um, and sometimes, so often, 
children can say they don't want to go and see one parent because of the fact that they're just finding the situation very pressured or there can be something about the environment that perhaps has upset them and it turns parents against each other because one parent assumes the other one's turning the children against them but actually often there can be a really simple explanation as to what is causing the obstruction and being able to create a safe space where children can say that can really help to iron out issues between parents and to help them to make arrangements that are focused on their children. Often adults make arrangements that work for adults, but children have different perspectives on it and worry about different things. Mm, yes, I think that's really important that children are heard and have a space, safe space to do that. And that there's not this pressure to do it in front of the parents as well, because, you know, that's very difficult for a child, I think. When you're, you know, you're sat in a room with both parents and that, you know, you're trying to desperately please both. I think that's, uh, yeah, very confusing. Definitely. And children are often chameleons. So there'll be one person with one parent and one person with another parent. And often they say what that parent wants to hear at the time because they love them and they want to have a good time with them. So when parents come together in mediation, it's, well, hang on a minute, you know, Lucy said this to me, or well, Lucy said this to me, and they're both like, well, you can't both be right. And it can create that kind of distance. So it's understanding that actually, you know, in this, Lucy may well have said things to both people because that's the way that she was feeling at the time when she was with each parent. I mean, this is so, this is so great. And, and I, I think that everything that we're talking about here is really, really important. And, uh, but just to sort of like bring it back to you again. So you're clearly an expert in your field. You know, you're very good at talking about the process of what you do, the benefits of what you do. So you're clearly enjoying it. Um, tell us how where you are as a person now how do you feel about yourself now and then my final question after that is if you had one piece of advice that you could offer your younger self from your current self what would you want to tell her and I always think it's really interesting because some people have sort of think because you're a family mediator and given the role I play that somehow I am always calm and I must always say the right thing to my children and I must never worry or argue about something. And honestly, it makes me laugh so much when people say that because of course I get wound up. Of course, I don't always practice what I preach. Of course, sometimes I lose my rag and shout at my children or my husband or other people. You know, I'm a human being after all. Um, I feel like I'm in a good place at the moment. I'm really lucky that I now have three mediators that work alongside me. So we're a team, which I've really enjoyed. One of the things I missed when I set up on my own was being able to kind of chat things through with colleagues. And although there's other mediators that I know that I've been able to talk through, having that team where we can work through things is really a, a lovely experience because, you know, they all look at me like I'm the boss, but really I don't always have all the answers. So talking things through and hearing from everyone is invaluable. Um, the whole boundaries thing, I don't think I could honestly say, yeah, I've got that completely licked because some weeks are really good and some weeks it's really busy and I kind of break my own boundaries. But it's much more of an awareness and of working about this isn't working, that worked quite well, what are you trying? And those kind of things. Um, and I think it's learning to have compassion for yourself. The way that I used to talk to myself, particularly kind of, 10 20 years ago was very kind of oh come on get on with it what's the matter with you why can't you do this there was that real kind of negative voice and although that still pipes up sometimes I know when to go yeah I don't need to hear from you I hear what you're trying to say I know you're trying to keep me safe but actually let's talk about clearly this is a day where you need a bit of extra care what are you going to do to care for yourself today 
Um, and that's a much more compassionate voice. And that's the voice that I always try to tune into. Um, and I think that would probably be the biggest bit of advice for my younger self to find that compassionate voice within you and to listen to that more than anything else. Um, I think I've spent far too much of my life worrying about what other people think, whether I'm doing what other people think I should be doing, what other people might be saying or judging me about. And actually, one of the things about being in my 40s is really thinking, well, actually, what do you want? What's right for you? And learning that that's actually the most important thing. And it doesn't really matter what other people think because they're not living my life. Thank you so much, Louisa. It has been absolutely wonderful talking to you. I've learned so much. Um, and I, I just have so much respect for what you're doing. I think it's a, a wonderful thing that you're doing. Um, I think it's been very interesting hearing your story of coming all the way from, you know, really feeling a low to doing something that you love and, and being able to sort of bring all of those compassionate sides back in and, and bring the boundaries back in and, and thrive in what you're doing. Because in doing that, you're helping so many other people too, right? Completely. Anything I've learned about myself, I'm then able to teach other people. And that's the way I look at it. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you to everyone for listening. And I will see you on the next podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not download the Room app? It's going to help you to understand what a rebirth is and how to have all for yourself. Join in the chat rooms, download the materials and programs and get monthly coaching and monthly networking all for the price of $6.99 a month. Download now in the App Store or Google Play Store.